Good morning, church. Open with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 as we continue. And we are really at the end of this particular study. Uh, We only have a few more sermons in this series, but as far as the text goes, we've really gotten to the end of the study of Genesis 1 through 3. So, read with me. We're only going to really focus on one verse this morning, but I'm going to give a, we're going to have a little bit of background. In Genesis 3, we'll look at verse 14 and 15 right now. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And now hear these words, church. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning in worship and in reverence. And as we just sang, we ask that your word will speak to us. These words that you spoke to our adversary, but in the presence of our first parents thousands and thousands of years ago, but are echoing now in our lives, and not just in the lives of your church, but in your kingdom, which covers all things and all people and all reality. So as we seek to understand and be consistent with the revealed truth you've given us, and as we seek to share that truth with a world that is watching and a world that needs hope, Lord, we pray this morning that these words, this promise, will be something that we can understand. So allow us to do that in your spirit this morning, we pray. Amen. Genesis 3.15, your fancy $5 theology word for this text is the Proto-Evangelion. Proto means first. Evangelion, that sounds like what? Evangelism, evangel, the good news. And that is because this text is the first time we see the good news proclaimed in the Bible. It's very important that we understand that the first time we saw the good news is not at the beginning of the New Testament. It's very important the first time we we understand the first time we see the good news is not when Jesus is is recorded as speaking John 3.16 to Nicodemus. The very first time that we have the good news on the heels of the bad news of the fall of man transgressing God's good commandments is here in Genesis 3.15. Spoken, as we mentioned a moment ago, to the serpent, but in the presence of Adam and Eve. And so consequently, that federal head, the one who sinned, and by consequence, all of us inherit sin, also received a promise that by consequence, all of us and all mankind hears. We hear it through divine scripture. We hear it through God's revealed word. But we also hear it because our first father, Adam, heard this promise. So this morning, we're going to talk about this promise. We're going to talk about this first gospel, this proto-evangelion. We're going to talk about a few more tricky words. But really what it comes down to is at this tail end of this sermon series, as we've been talking about how Genesis 1 through 3 define all of reality, we get to this text, and this is the verse that really takes us from the garden, and as Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden because of their sin, this verse shoots us into today and shoots us towards the cross and shoots us towards the consummation of all things. This is a pivotal text So as important as it is to understand that in the beginning God, as important as it is to understand in the beginning God created, 
As important as it is to understand that he created Sabbath for his creation, a time of rest, as important as it is to know that he created man in his image, he created them male and female, that he gave them a mandate on how to live in this world, as important as it is to understand that man sinned, and because man sinned and there was a curse, it is also necessary, it is vital, it is essential for the church and for the world to know that there is a promise of deliverance. There is a promise of salvation. But that whole picture has to be seen. As we mentioned last week, the gospel is impotent if it's not shown in contrast with the reason for a gospel. You can't have good news without knowing the bad news. And so last week we talked about the curse. This week we talk about the promise. But there's more to it than just the promise of a Savior. There's more to it than just the promise of salvation. And we see that in this text in Genesis 3.15. Because the first thing we see is, are the opposite sides. There are opposite sides. Now again, here's our second fancy theological and actually philosophical term, and it's antithesis. What is an antithesis? Well, an antithesis is a great way to explain something, or explain two things that aren't just standing next to one another, but are standing in opposition to one another. When you get into the New Testament, we'll actually look at a verse from the Gospel of John. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, often uses the idea of darkness and light. Darkness and light do not coexist together. I've never walked into a room where half of the room is dark and half of the room is light. The light always imposes itself on the darkness. There is an antithesis there. These are two things that cannot live with one another. Oil and water, these things, they, they cannot be together. You can shake up your salad dressing, but you let it sit and it's going to separate. This is the idea of an antithesis. Two things that stand in opposition to each other. There's not neutrality, as we'll talk about here in a minute. And this is what we see, these opposite sides, this is what we see presented in Genesis 3.15. We'll talk about the idea of enmity in a second, but notice that the enmity exists because there's two sides. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So these are the two sides, church. These are the two opposite sides. He's talking to the serpent, and of course, as he's engaging with the serpent and talking to the serpent, he is talking about Satan. He's talking to Satan. He's talking to the devil. He's talking to the adversary, the accuser, and he is talking to Eve. And he's saying that this is the beginning of this antithesis, the beginning of these opposite sides. There is going to be conflict between Eve and between Satan. But he goes a step further than that. He says, and between your seed and her seed. What is seed? The idea of seed is so essential in Genesis. In fact, you see this over and over and over again. Sometimes newer translations will talk about offspring. Sometimes we'll talk about descendants, talk about progeny, use words like that because it's a little bit less of a visceral image. But in the original language and what we have translated in most of our scriptures is the idea of seed, the idea of the, the, uh, the descendants of a particular person or a particular group. And so you see this over and over and over again. This is so essential as we come to understand where Jesus came from. He is the seed of David. He is the seed of, of Judah. This is something that is commu clearly communicated in Scripture. It is the descendant of. And so the antithesis, these opposite sides, don't only exist between Satan through the serpent and Eve, who had this actual tangible conflict in, in, in the garden, but they are going to exist, God says, for perpetuity between those who are descended from Eve and those who are aligned with or who are affiliated with Satan. Now, this is interesting, church, because this, again, just like everything else we've talked about in Genesis 1 through 3, defines all reality. 
There is not some sort of adjunct story that is happening off to the side of Genesis 1 through 3, where we have this whole other stream of narrative that we have to take into account. So that is to say, it's not like Genesis 1 through 3 gives us the main storyline, but there's also these other alternative storylines that we have to take into account. It's not as if the, 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 the main saga is found in Scripture, but then there are these other corollary books that we can bring in to kind of give a fullness of the picture. I don't know if anyone has, has ever endeavored to read Tolkien's Cimmerillion. This is like an extra level of nerd conversation that we're having at 10.30 on a Sunday morning. We're all very familiar with The Lord of the Rings through the books and through the far inferior films. But what Tolkien intended to do as he gave this wonderful story of Middle-earth through The Hobbit and then through The Lord of the Rings was then to embellish and give the background story and give all of these other interesting facts about Middle-earth. And so he wrote The Cimmerillion, and it's as dry as dry can be. This shows that my nerd credentials are not as strong as maybe some of you. However, that is legitimate story within that fabricated world that gives the background of things, and it gives other things that happened that you never saw in the books, that you never read as you went through the, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. There's nothing like that for Genesis 1 through 3. That isn't to say that Adam didn't have an encounter with a good piece of fruit that we don't have recorded. is isn't to say that uh, Adam and Eve didn't give names to animals that we don't have recorded. But it, what it does mean, and I think is so essential for us to understand, is that Genesis 1 through 3 gives us the totality of the establishment of the world and the order that the world is in. So what that means is when we get to this verse, and it tells us that there's an antithesis, there's an opposition between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it means that there is no third way. There's no third party. There's no third allegiance. There's no point of neutrality. There are only two sides. Those who in heart in mind, in word, in deed, are affiliated with the seed of the woman, and those who in word and deed and heart and mind are affiliated with the seed of the serpent. You might say, does that mean that what you th I think you're, you're saying, that people are either on the side of Jesus or on the side of Satan? Yes, that is what I am saying because that is what the Bible is saying. Now, I think it's important to insert here this important clarification. Does that mean that all Christians are basically angelic and the best people in the world and everyone who is not a Christian is really an agent of Satan who is out to try to destroy the world? That is not the case. That's not how Christ interacts with people. And I think that's the most important thing that we have to keep in mind as we are talking about these theological truths that are real, that establish the way the world is. We have to keep in mind that Jesus himself gives us a pattern for how this practically looks as we interact with people. But Christ himself, when talking to the Pharisees, very, very religious people, but people who did not conform to God's standard of having hearts that were humble before him, Jesus himself said, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus, in fact, underlines this antithesis, these opposite sides. I think it's important also to go off of what Scripture says and not what the world says. The world presents countless options of worldviews, countless options of, of perspectives on how reality works. The world presents countless options when it comes to religions and how we are to get to God. But the fact of the matter is, there's only ever and always two sides. And those two sides are those who look to Christ and those who do not look to Christ. And again, as we talked about last week, what a blessing it is that so many who don't know Christ still live lives that, that, are, um, that lead to human flourishing. So many people that do not know Jesus still love their families. 
still are beneficial to us and love us, and we have opportunity to love them. But what we see here as we are faced with this antithesis, faced with these opposite sides, is that we have to understand the stakes that are presented to us, the stakes of this world. In John chapter 1 in the prologue, and and there's so many parallels between John 1 uh, and, and Genesis 1 through 3, John writes, In him, talking of Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. Once again, here's the antithesis between darkness and light, as alluded to earlier in the Gospel of John. It's two things. There's not a third option. It's not dark, light, and I can't even in my mind begin to think what a third option would be within that conversation. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about basically this this idea of there only being two ways. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus himself is drawing this distinction between the one way that is found through him and all of the other ways. There is a narrow path that is Christ, and there is a wide path that is all of the other options. But when it comes down to it, there's only two options. It doesn't matter that one way is narrow in scope through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, and the other way is wide in scope, any religious or irreligious worldview that you can think of. The difference is one is in Christ, one is through the God-ordained method of salvation, the allegiance to those who are preserved, children of Eve, and those who are pursuing something different the lie, the lie of the evil one. Church, there's an, there are our opposite sides. There is an antithesis, and we can't deny it. We can't deny that we all also live in God's world. And this is an important thing to remind us that, we, that, that there's this pull, culturally certainly, and even within significant segments of Christianity, that there's a pull to go easy on worldviews that line up with our perspectives on things like peace, on love, etc. That, that there's this pragmatic uh, uh, pull to, to say these people who, who conform to this worldview are really not the ones we ought to worry about. We ought to worry about the anarchists and the terrorists and the the ones who are really causing significant problems in our lives and the world. Those are the ones that we ought to worry about. But although that is true and we ought to reach out and have a significant impact in those arenas, there are plenty of people whose lives are characterized by peace and love, whose yard signs are characterized by peace and love, whose, whose social media presence and whose entire lives are characterized by peace and love by a world standard who do not know Jesus, and so they are not okay by the standard set forth in inspired Scripture. We, again, ought to be thankful for our neighbors who are good neighbors, who are loving families, who, who are, are, compl- are really living lives that are helpful and, and contribute to human flourishing. But at the deeper level where we care for the souls of people, we must acknowledge this antithesis that exists between those who know Christ and don't know Christ. We love our neighbor, especially with gospel truth. We love our neighbors, but we acknowledge this antithesis. And of course, we know that we didn't find ourselves in this position because of our goodness. We didn't find ourselves in this allegiance to the seed of the woman as opposed to the seed of the serpent because of our genetics, because of our income, because of our ethnicity, anything like that. We only find ourselves allied with Christ, the seed of the woman, because of his great grace. But because of that, we now are in a position through his Holy Spirit to understand his word, to understand these essential truths laid down all the way at the beginning of history that underline unequivocally that God as creator and God as lawgiver, he is the one who defines reality and commands allegiance. 
This is the most essential thing that ought to be communicated. It ought to be spoken into this antithesis. And again, the fact that there's opposite sides doesn't mean that there is never a line that can't be broken, that people can't be pulled out of darkness into light. And we can say that with great surety because that is what has precisely happened to you and to me. So we have to acknowledge, church, that there are opposite sides. Now, hopefully, you understand, and hopefully anyone listening to this understands that this doesn't mean that we cloister ourselves. We don't wall ourselves off from the world. We don't hide Monday through Saturday, and especially on Sunday mornings, from the world. God has commanded us, even with this antithesis, with these opposite sides, of being present, of being salt and light in the world. Because as we already read in John 1, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overtake it. This is our commissioning, our great commission given to us by Christ himself. So the fact that there is this antithesis at a worldview level, there is this this core uh, uh, barrier between these two worldviews, doesn't mean that we hide. It means that we go out, we engage with neighbor, we engage with community. We don't treat people as other when it comes to living life, but we acknowledge the otherness in allegiance. And we don't treat people as enemies. We treat people as those who are to be brought in to the wonderful reality and truth that we have been shown through the grace of Jesus. So there, in Genesis 3, we first see, in 3.15, we see that there are opposite sides. And secondly, we see that there's an ongoing struggle. There's an ongoing struggle. And the ongoing struggle we see in that word that I mentioned before, that there is enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. There is enmity between the opposite sides. Now, church, this is, again, an essential truth to understand as we get to this point in Genesis, because this truth, that there is a fight between these two, uh, the, these two factions, as it were, those that, that, that faction aligned with, with the serpent and the faction aligned with the woman, and ultimately her true seed in Christ, there is a fight that characterizes the narrative of Genesis, the narrative of the entire scriptures, and the narrative of history. It plays itself out, and and as we'll look over in the next few weeks as we will kind of continue to look at Genesis in some other ways, we'll see that this antithesis, this struggle, this enmity is what characterizes the very narrative of Genesis. We're very familiar with the narratives of Genesis. In a few chapters, there's a flood, and then there's a tower, and then we meet Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and these are wonderful Bible stories. And they are true, and they are historical, but the one thing that we need to see as we look in this is some of these key words, words like enmity, words like seed, and understanding that what is being set forth here in Genesis 3.15 actually is a theme and a motif that continues to weave its way through not just Genesis, but again, the entirety of the Old Testament and the entirety of the Scriptures. In fact, as you get to the end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 12, this idea that there's enmity between the woman and, and, and the serpent and between her seed and, and uh, your seed. In Revelation chapter 12, we get to this passage. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And it continues on to say, So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her seed, who keep the commandments of God and have the witness of Jesus. In, 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 in a book that finds itself at the very end of our canon, which was written late in, in the first century, I would say before 70 AD, but still late in the first century, we have a, almost a bookend of this struggle, a bookend of this enmity that exists and that defines all reality. What was promised by God in Genesis chapter 3, we see continuing all the way to the end of time. That in Revelation chapter 12, that the dragon, the serpent, Satan is still making war with the seed of the woman. But as we mentioned earlier, this doesn't mean that we take up sword. 
This doesn't mean that we, we have crusade against those who don't believe in the gospel. This is not the nature of our fight. Christ himself says that, th- that, that this is not the nature of his, of his conflict. Our fight is not ultimately of this world, but the world is the setting of our fight. You see that distinction? Our fight is not of this world, but this world is the setting of our fight. In Ephesians chapter 6, a wonderful text that uh, uh, children that were at our, 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 our planting church in Andover this week learned, just to put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And how is that fight carried out? Not by fist, not by firearm, but using, and the Apostle Paul uses the analogy of a suit of armor that manifests itself in truth, in righteousness, in peace, in faith, in salvation, in the sword of the Spirit. The enmity that exists is not personal in the sense that we find someone and we, we determine their worldview and we grab them by the cuff of their, their, their neck and, or we, we block them in their house until they convert. Inevitably, that has been tried and it never, ever goes well. But our fight is against ideas. Our fight is against economies. Our fight is against movements that oppose the gospel. Because these are the things that in the hand of the evil one, and things that all of us were once beholden to, these are things that are being used as the stumbling blocks to get between people and the truth. Ideas, economies, movements, things that oppose the gospel. This is where there is enmity. This is where you feel that enmity when you speak up for what you know to be the truth. The arguments that are being made are often being made from worldviews and being made from positions that have been formulated to be antithetical to the message of the gospel itself. This is where there's enmity. This is the promise that we have been given that we will face hardship, that we will face suffering, that we will face difficulty. Because the nature of this world and of her worldviews is such that it is contradictory to the truth of Scripture. Instead of elevating God, it, decre- it, it, it lowers God. Instead of, ele- instead of uh, seeing creation as f- coming from God, it elevates creation to being ultimate. Instead of establishing the image of God in people from the unborn to the aged, it takes that away and it reduces them to the level of animal. Instead of seeing the goodness that is established in male and female, he created them. It loses that distinction and creates murkiness and blurriness in those things. Instead of seeing the truth of a historical Adam and Eve and a historical fall, it simply says that we are created good and we've just lost our way. Every one of the major problems that we are dealing with as a culture today and as a global church today can find their results and find their, their, their origins all the way back in Genesis 1 through 3 and a perversion of the truth that we've been talking about in these past weeks. And people fall captive to these ideologies. People fall captive to these movements because outside of Christ... These are the only things that make sense because they appeal to who we are. We, on a day-to-day basis, struggle with this, church. As believers, we struggle with this. Every time we sin, every time we see something that we're not supposed to do, in that moment, what we are effectively doing is say, God, I know better than you in this situation. You have promised cursing for this, but I see a pathway that really is characterized by blessing. And so I'm going to show you how I think this works better. So we are not foreign to this concept. This this concept is not something that is alien to us. Every time we sin, we are making that creator-creation distinction blurred. I know better. 
This was the sin of Adam and the sin of Eve, and it's a sin that all of their children, us included, join in readily. So what does this look like? If we're not to fight people, if we're, fight, we're, we're, we're to fight ideas and worldviews, and we're to fight these, these areas of unbelief, how do we do that? Because inevitably, we've all seen on the news overzealous and often anti-biblical movements who through picketing, who through, through, through screaming, who through, through protesting are attempting, at least in theory, to share the gospel, but it certainly doesn't come across as such. It seems only, as, if the, as we were saying before, that you have an impotent, impotent gospel if there's no call for repentance and only a, a, a presentation of hope. It's almost the opposite. There's only a presentation of a need for repentance. And even then, it's simply calling out the sin. How do we do this right? I think it's important and it's necessary in our cultural present moment to understand that our enmity is not necessarily first and foremost with people. Our enmity is with movements. So a way to think of this succinctly is that we are to fight the flags, not the people. Fight the flags, not the people. What do flags do? Flags represent movements. Flags represent countries. Flags represent entities that are not persons. So you think of any conflict that we've been in, in in recent history or going back historically. And one of the things that we see, particularly in hindsight, is the persons that are underneath that flag. I do a lot of reading, particularly as it relates to the Civil War. And one of the things that you see, even in contemporary accounts of the war between the states, is that you had so much affinity that still existed between the people. Whenever there was a ceasefire and they would go back, you know, there was more tobacco in the south and there was more of really everything else in the north. And so they were able to stop and they were able to trade and they had these congenial relationships over the picket lines. And it was this understanding that these are still our brothers, these are still our cousins, but we want that flag that they are marching under to die and to burn. And the same thing is true under every other conflict we see the persons that are underneath these flags. And of course, we live in a day and age where so many of the movements that we oppose are characterized by flags, whether it be political ideologies, things like communism and socialism, whether it be movements such as the LGBTQ movement and things like that, where it is very quick for the church to point a finger at these flags and say, everything about this is bad. And from a movement standpoint, it's true, but from a personal standpoint, this is where we have to draw a distinction. These are people that very well Jesus has died for. Jesus called you and me out of movements that were antithetical to him, significantly allegiance to darkness. The same is true for anyone else who marches under a flag. Church, Jesus came to die for people. He came to die for people out of every country and every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And we show love to people regardless of what flag they are under. Imagine the missionary movement if we said, these flags are of governments that we disagree with, so we will not send missionaries into that country. Or, our missions organization has been founded in this state, and we really don't like the politics of the state next door, so we, we prohibit our members to go and evangelize in, you know, pagan Massachusetts. It's that way. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's preposterous. But we sometimes have that same mindset when it comes to flags that represent worldviews. Church, Jesus did not come to die for flags, Jesus did not come to die for the flag of the United States or a rainbow flag or any other flag that exists in your understanding. But he came to die for people who march and live under those flags. This is important for us to make this distinction. Every flag that has ever flown in the United States or in this world for the entirety of history will one day be under the feet of Christ in submission to him. But there will be people 
that come from every one of these tribes, tongues, nations, movements, that because of God's great grace will be his people. And they will rejoice in the fact that they were freed from ideologies that are antithetical to the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of his Christ. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Once again, church, Jesus isn't saving people who are good with him. He is saving people who are at enmity with him. This is the, the whole crux of the gospel. We fight ideologies, we fight movements, we love people. We fight ideologies, we, 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 we pursue them being torn down, but we lift up people and we do so in the truth of the gospel. This was Christ's mission. This is the, these are the people he encountered, whether it was the religious right, whether it was the progressive left, whether it be those who were zealous and all over the place. These are the kinds of people that Jesus reached out to. He did not discriminate. He pointed strong fingers and had strong words for the movements that they allied themselves with. But he loved them where they were and spoke truth, never equivocating on what was real and what was true. We ought to, as Christians, as little Christ, as those who are following his example and sharing his truth, do the same. There is a fight, there is enmity, and we can't deny it. But once again, we don't know, out of the rebels on the other side, who God is going to win. Because we were once rebels. None of us ought to have the pride or the audacity or the hubris to say, I've been good the whole time. Every one of us has been one as a rebel, and we are now in the business of converting other rebels. Remember, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, that you, talking to the church, that you were at, at time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Many of us have been Christians so long that we don't even remember what that was like without Christ, alienated, strangers, no hope, without God. But imagine being in that situation. Imagine the disenfranchisement that you already feel and then to be spurned by those who, who have that hope. This doesn't mean that we ever give the thumbs up to sin, to wrong behavior. But it means that we put ourselves in a situation where that truth can be so clear and present to those who are without hope. Knowing once again it was not anything that we did, but it was Christ that took care of the enmity between us and God. And ultimately between us and those who are we are at enmity with. Because it says later in Ephesians 2 that Christ reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. Church, this is the gospel. I mean, this is, this is, this is the fullness of the gospel in many ways. That we were once on the wrong side. We were antithetical to God in what we believed and what we lived and who we were. No matter how moral or how good we were, we still fell short. And this is true of everyone, irrespective of, of, of family origin, irrespective, again, of morality, of how clean and shiny their lives are. Every one of us was a stranger and an alien, but Christ. Because of Christ's work on the cross, we can have salvation through repentance, and through faith. The simplicity of that gospel. And that's what we get to here in the, the last point, the end of verse 15. Because this is what God promises to the serpent, again, in the hearing of Adam and Eve. He says, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. 
We can't discount that there was pain. We can't fly past the, the, the cross and the suffering and the agony of Christ. And this is what we see pictured here. I mean, consider it. This is, we continue to talk about snakes. For those of you who don't like snakes, it's in the Bible, I'm sorry. I don't bring it up simply for fun, but I do kind of enjoy watching people squirm. Consider this. We don't have a lot of venomous snakes up here in New England, but the further south you go, the more venomous snakes there are. And if you find yourself in close proximity with a snake, hopefully you let that snake go. Remember, like everything frightening in this world, it's more scared of you than you are of it. That's not true. Snakes can't be afraid. But that's not the point. If you do get yourself in that situation where the snake is about to bite and you stomp on it and you, you do that to, to protect yourself, the very, there is a very real likelihood that it's going to coil and it's going to be able to get a little bit of purchase on your foot. Now, Lord willing, you won't succumb to the venom. And Lord willing, you'll be okay. But through the utter destruction of that threat, you still suffered a wound. Of course, this is pointing to the cross. And it's pointing to Christ. The great victory achieved, the final victory that we see, came at a great cost. It wasn't something simply that God snapped his fingers. Is it, some, it wasn't simply something where Christ came down and said, I banish you, Satan. Christ endured suffering. Christ endured the physical suffering that it was entailed being laid on the cross. And as, as much as that was, he also endured the spiritual and emotional suffering of the fullness of the wrath of God intended to be poured out on you and poured out on me was instead poured out in fullness on him. He was bruised. The, the suffering that came into the world because of the temptation of the evil one that influenced Adam and Eve met its fullness. Pain, suffering, reached its zenith on the cross. There was pain. It was a great bruising on his heel. But there will be victory. We persevere in a similar way. We persevere in a similar way. Christ went to the cross knowing that there would be great victory because of his obedience and through his pain, and we have that same opportunity in a much lesser way. None of us is going to die for someone else. None of us is going to atone for anyone else's sins. In fact, we couldn't even atone for our own sins. But we have a pattern before us of Christ enduring these things for great blessing. And through that, we actually see these benefits. In Romans chapter 16, the benediction that is given at the end of, of Romans, it says that I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Although Christ is the one who gets the ultimate victory, the church is in many ways his agent as he has victory over these sinful ideologies, these sinful movements, and ultimately those who are allied with Satan. We know the outcome. The cross was the surety of that outcome. Christ's death and his resurrection and his ascension are the surety of this final victory. And we know that it's not tied to the church. It's not tied to individual Christians. It certainly isn't tied to any nation, but it's tied to our God and to his Christ. And so there's a coming victory, and we can't deny it. But again, as we engage with the world, we don't live in a way where we're hiding in bunkers because things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. We don't hide away because we, we, we don't want to, to engage with people lest we fear that we get dirty and we get sullied. We go out with a victorious message of a victory that is still coming, but that has already been accomplished. So in these last minutes, church, hear this. Hear about the security of this victory of God and of the seed of the woman in Christ over the seed of the serpent. Jesus says in Matthew 12, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Jesus was accused of being, uh, being demon-possessed himself. And he says, how can I be demon-possessed if, if I'm casting out demons? You first have to tie up the strong man if you're going to go into his house and take all of his stuff and mess up his world. So he says, watch this. And then he casts out a demon, illustrating that he has victory over Satan already during his ministry on earth. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus commissioned 70, so he had his 12, then he had 70 that he commissioned his evangelists to go out. And when they came back to him with the report, they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In Jesus' ministry, he had examples of real victory over Satan even before the end times as we like to think of them. And this is what he says as he goes to the cross in the Gospel of John. He says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Not 2,000 and some years in the future. Not when circumstances align in the Middle East. Not when a person rises up as a great charismatic leader and there's some great events that transpire around that. Jesus says, now judgment, this is first century, this is the life of Christ, now judgment is upon this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus says, will draw all men, men of all nations, to myself. Church, this is the benefit, I I don't know how many of you are ethnically Jewish or not, but we are the beneficiaries of Jesus saying this, because the nations were deceived no longer. Those nations that were the seed of the serpent in many ways, serving false gods, bowing down to false idols, living lives that were in complete antithetical ways to the gospel. In the life of Christ, he sent people out, and certainly through his work on the cross, and through leaving, and through the Holy Spirit coming, and through Pentecost, and through the beginning of the church, now Satan did not have that grasp on the nations, and you and I from across the globe finding our way to a little backwater part of New England called Chester, New Hampshire, are the beneficiaries of Jesus' words that Satan is defeated and Jesus will draw all men to himself. The victorious reality forecasted in Genesis 3.15 is a truth that the evangelical church must know. We cannot be defeatist, church. We cannot live like it's all falling apart. It might look like it's falling apart. It might feel like it's falling apart. But Jesus and his church will not lose because of his work. Similarly, we can't be fanatical. Jesus and his church are victorious because of his work. So understand these two two things. We won't lose because of what Christ has done, but our victory is because of what Christ has done. Notice where we factor in on that. Notice where our, our ingenuity falls into that. It's all because of Christ's work. Although bruised on the cross, the heel of the Messiah has already stomped upon the head of the serpent. And at his return, he will twist it one last time before casting the bloody corpse of that serpent into the lake of fire for all eternity. This is a sure thing. This is a promise. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus who stands for us. This is the Jesus who we call people to and that we turn to. So church, Genesis 3.15, it establishes that there's this antithesis, there's these opposite sides, that there's an ongoing struggle, that there's enmity, but ultimately it promises a final victory. It gives us a roadmap, it gives us a battle plan, it gives us a way of understanding all things, knowing that it will be difficult, that we are to anticipate strife, we are to expect hard times, but that what has already been accomplished 
is a foretaste of what will be accomplished. The victory that is certain will one day be brought to fullness. So now, it says in Psalm 2, O kings, show insight, take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is our hope. This is our blessing. That we don't put our faith in the world, but we put our faith in Christ. And so this morning as we take the Lord's Supper, it's a small reminder that this is our hope. It's a small reminder that in a tangible and real way, that the things that we might not experience by sight in 2023 in the United States, that these things are fleeting. That although it may seem like the seed of the serpent is, is the, the prevailing uh, winds of the day, that this is temporal, and that God has, has already secured the victory, and he did it through blood, and he did it through his own body in his son, Jesus Christ. So we think about a lot of things when we take the supper. We think about reconciliation. We think about relationship. We think about the blessing of communion. But this morning, I would encourage you, in a very real way, think of anticipation. Think of this final victory. Think about the cost that it it, it took, that a real body and real blood was broken and shed. But in doing so, the final victory, what we anticipate, is something that this has secured And that this will usher in a time where we stand with one another, with all those who've gone before us, with those who come from places that we would would be the last place that we would expect. But the great power of Jesus Christ and his gospel draws all men to himself. And we will one day sit together and enjoy this feast with Christ in heaven. So as John comes up to lead this last song, I'll ask that you come and receive the elements and bring them back to your seat. If you know Jesus, this is for you. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this meal is a meal for you that he invites you to. So we'll celebrate together. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the good word, this first gospel preached to, in a a sense, all peoples because it was preached to our very first parents. And because of that, there's accountability. There's the expectation of humility, of contrition, of obedience. But Lord, we know that that does not come but through your word. So Lord, let us be the kind of church that takes your word, that doesn't take good thoughts, that doesn't take good intentions, that doesn't take good vibes or whatever the ridiculous notion of the day might be, but takes the good news of the gospel, the gospel preached thousands of years ago, and the only gospel by which men may be saved to a watching, waiting, and hopeless world. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.